Hello and welcome back. I'm Glenda from Miles Ahead Wellness. In our last episode, we talked about clarity, by getting to know yourself through self-awareness, your values and strengths. And it was our vitality that I mentioned may be missing from the PERMA model created by Martin Seligman's flourishing model. PERMA meaning positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. In this episode, we talk about energy because let's face it, we can't move through life without energy. If you've ever had a bad night's sleep or maybe one of those wicked hangovers, then you can remember how hard it is to do life with such little energy. The problem today is that many of us have this low-grade energy hang-up. So we have some, but not a lot, and are in this constant push and pull with how we do our life while managing our energy. So let's dive in. Here's some brutal honesty. Stop making excuses and putting your head in the sand. Pretending there isn't an issue because the stats say there likely is. We are a profoundly sick society with access to everything we need to be healthy, fit, and thriving. So why aren't we? In these episodes, we explore topics shown to impact our overall well-being from the latest research and practices that can be easily implemented into our daily lives because sustainable change needs to be simple, frequent, and consistent. Welcome to episode two, Get Energized. In this episode, we do some entry-level dive into what is energy, and then I explain three action steps to focus on so we can generate more energy in our bodies. And our practice is all about noticing where the energy drains, whether those are psychological, mental, or physiological, where they are in our lives. The sources used for today's episodes are all included in the show notes, as well as additional resources and research. Let's go back in time to around elementary, junior high science class and recall what is energy? What we call energy is actually a molecule called adrenosine triphosphate, better known as ATP. And it's produced by tiny cellular structures called mitochondria. You might remember mitochondria as being the powerhouse. Well, it's much more than that. ATP's job is to store energy and then to deliver that energy to cells in other parts of the body. So they really direct the energy in the body as well as, of course, the creation of ATP. It is used as the primary energy source for most biochemical and physiological processes in our body, such as growth, movement, homeostasis. Dr. Chris Palmer in his book Brain Energy recently was on the podcast The Huberman Lab and he talked about mitochondria being not only the power cord that we used to think of it as but actually the motherboard of the computer itself. It directs the main neurotransmitters including serotonin, acetylcholine, glutamate and dopamine in our body. It directs it in terms of the production, the release, and the regulation of all of these major neurotransmitters. These are some of the building blocks that are being produced by mitochondria, energy for the creation, but also the release of these neurotransmitters. And it is also, mitochondria, the primary regulator of epigenetics. Okay, so what is epigenetics? At a very introductory discussion, it's the study of how your behaviors and environment, what we might have called the nurture, 
can cause changes that affect the way your genes work, the nature part. Simplifying this idea is that DNA is present and we can't necessarily change our DNA and that we may have a gene that predisposes us to a disease. But whether it's turned on or not is actually based on several lifestyle factors that have been identified as potentially modifying epigenetic patterns, such as diet, obesity, physical activity, tobacco smoking, alcohol consumption, environmental pollutants, psychological stress, and even working night shifts because it affects our melatonin. So energy or vitality is the very essence we need to live and move through our lives. And we know that mitochondria health is actually key to longevity. Age-related changes in mitochondria are often associated with a decline in mitochondrial function. Mitochondrial biogenesis declines with age due to alterations in mitochondrial dynamics and inhibition of mitophagy, which is an autophagy process that removes dysfunctional mitochondria. Now, autophagy will be part of our conversation in an upcoming episode in February on fasting, as it has been shown that the body will move into autophagy phase around 17 hours of fasting. So consider it like a cleanup phase. It's like the vacuum cleaner that sucks up all of the things that maybe are not functioning well in the body. And this actually happens when we sleep as well as part of that recovery phase. Mitochondria do so much more than produce energy. And next season, when we talk about the mind, we will be bringing this up again, as there's some new research connecting mitochondrial function and mental health leading to some to believe that mental health issues are actually metabolic issues. There's a growing and significant obesity issue in North America, which many view as a symptom of the growing metabolic dysfunction in North America, which is also linked to the growing mental health disorders. In a recent study, this is a U.S. stat, only 12% of Americans were metabolically healthy. And just to be clear, for those of you who might be doing math, that means 88% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. That's mind-blowing. So let's go back. What does metabolic health mean? Metabolic health is a measure, and it's measured by blood sugar, waist circumference, blood pressure, cholesterol, and triglycerides, all within healthy range without the use of medication. This is the benchmark that's been set by scientists and doctors. When one or more of these factors or measurements are not in the optimal range, it is defined as metabolic syndrome and greatly increases the risk of other serious health issues like heart disease and type 2 diabetes. Metabolic syndrome is linked to a condition often called insulin resistance. Normally, your digestive system breaks down foods that you eat into sugar. Insulin is a hormone made by the pancreas that helps sugar enter your cells to be used then as fuel. In people with insulin resistance, cells don't respond normally to insulin and glucose can't enter the cells as easily. So the blood sugar continues to rise and your body continues to churn out more and more insulin in order to lower your blood sugar. So it's this constant push and pull and your insulin 
becomes higher and higher. Perimenopausal and menopausal women, we see an increase in insulin resistance as part of the overall hormonal shifts and changes that are happening in the body. And as the body tries to maintain homeostasis, again, regulated by mitochondria, there's a shift in other hormones and energy production and distribution, and this affects our insulin sensitivity and often puts women into metabolic syndrome. As I mentioned in the last session, about four out of five women, especially over the age of 40, actually have metabolic syndrome. And although medications can help in supporting healthy numbers, aggressive lifestyle changes are required. So ultimately, again, we are profoundly sick society. And taking one pill often just leads to taking three pills or four pills and masking the underlying issues and systemic issues that our society faces regarding caring for our health. Lifestyle changes are hard and they take effort. And I see it every week with clients who really just want a quick fix. And that may be okay in the short term, but we want to focus on the long game and creating opportunities for us all to live a long and healthy life. Long being the quantity of days, but health being a factor of the quality of those days. And this means creating healthy habits that support healthy body functioning. So what else is hard, perhaps even harder, is living with a chronic illness or, and or metabolic crisis. Often the two go hand in hand. So let's get into some action steps. Number one, what we measure matters. Have you ever heard that before? Well, it's true. And often what we do is we get on a scale and we see how much we weigh as this measurement of health when it's really not a very good measure of our overall health. But here's what is. Do you know your numbers, your insulin or fasting glucose or your A1C glucose, cholesterol, blood pressure, your waist to hip circumference, your percentage of body fat, I would add in inflammation markers like your C-reactive protein, your heart rate variability, and your activity level. These are all numbers that we should know and watch. Not only the normal range, which is often what we're given with lab results, but more importantly, optimal ranges based on our age and activity level. This seems like a natural time to talk about wearables. So this can be anything from Fitbit, Apple Watch, or Ring. There's a whole bunch of whoop is another one that allows us to track so much more information about movement, sleep, readiness scores. These are, of course, are additional pieces of information, not to exclude our internal awareness of how we're feeling, but to add to it. And I appreciate that they are not available to everyone based on costs. Additionally, we can also use a continuous glucose monitor for a few weeks or a month to watch our glucose numbers and have some understanding of those trends. I happen to use an aura ring, which I use to track my activity levels each day, my sleep, as I'll discuss in the next one, and my readiness scores. I look at these numbers to enhance my overall personal experience. I've used Fitbit for a number of years before switching to the ring as I really just didn't like wearing the watch to bed and it was starting to bother me, but I really wanted to be able to monitor my sleep. I've also used a continuous glucose monitor a few times. I usually do it two months out of the year. 
and I eat my regular diet and I just kind of monitor my glucose dips and peaks over the days and the weeks. Additional information on how I'm feeling at those times and how my nutritional choices affect it. So I track it in my journal then kind of noting, oh, my glucose dipped, what's going on for me so that I know when I get a headache and how it feels, I know that that's probably my glucose dipping and I can have something to eat as an example or drink. Talk to your doctor, naturopathic doctor, nurse practitioner, a healthcare provider about you getting to know your numbers and monitoring them on a regular basis. I say every six to 12 months is probably a good, unless of course you're dealing with metabolic syndrome, in which case you may want to have those measures done more often. We need to arm ourselves with the information that help us to make better choices for ourselves and also allow us to confront the excuses in our own mind around what might be going on because the data will tell us the brutal truth about what's happening so that we can better face it and make choices for our own health. Next up on our action list is what I believe should be everyone's number one self-care habit, and that is sleep. Sleep is not to be underestimated. As a mental health practitioner, I see all the time how sleep affects people's ability to move through their day in a healthy way. Especially those people with anxiety and or depression, sleep can be a real indicator whether they're not sleeping or they're sleeping too much around how they're taking care of themselves and moving through their life. For me, it's my number one self-care habit. I protect it at all costs. So beyond hoping to get eight hours of sleep, which doesn't always happen, I aim for each night to also have a specific number of deep sleep, which is consistent with my REM sleep. So I try to have the REM, the percentage of REM sleep and deep sleep to be about the same. And I also keep track of my HRV or my heart rate variability. More on that in another episode. It all begins with the night before and our sleep hygiene habits. And we all know these. Some might be new to you. I'm going to give you a list of 10 things. Some of these may be new. Some of them you may already know. But taken together, if done consistently, will change how you sleep and ultimately how you feel. The list of 10 things includes four don'ts and six do's. So the list of don'ts. No caffeine 8 to 12 hours before bed. Regardless of how you think your body reacts and the fact that you can sleep even though you're drinking coffee, it still has an impact on your physiology. So no caffeine 8 to 12 hours before bed is optimal. No food 3 hours before bed because, of course, food... Our body needs to digest the food that we ate and that can stimulate heart rate and also affect how we sleep. No alcohol or substances. There are better choices available. A pot is not your friend even when it comes to sleep. Again, we may have gotten into a habitual habit of using pot to help us sleep, to relax, to go to sleep but it has physiological effects on our body that over time are not helpful. So cut out the digital screens. Optimally, it's one hour before bed, but at least 30 minutes before bed. So those are the four don'ts. No caffeine, no food, no alcohol substances, 
no screen time. Screen time, by the way, includes our phone, TV, computer, iPads, all of it. So the do's, let's talk about the do's. Interestingly, the first one I'm going to talk about is light. So there's some really interesting research around adjusting our circadian rhythms, starting with getting light, sunlight in particular, within 30 minutes of waking. So within the first 30 minutes of waking, going outside, no sunglasses on, and being exposed to sunlight for about 10-ish minutes, depending on cloud cover and whatnot. Now, if you're like me and you live in the Northern Hemisphere, that can be really challenging, especially in the winter, because we're waking up when it's still dark out. And so another alternative is to use light therapy. And so there are many lights available. You can get it on Amazon or wherever that can be helpful. So I know for me, that's what I do because I get up early. Usually the sun is not out, except in the summer when I can go outside and then I do, is to come down and I have it available, my light therapy next to where I meditate. The second part of the light therapy is there is another part of the day around that 4 to 6 p.m. of also getting some direct sunlight at that time. And these two things in the first thing in the morning around 5 start to adjust our circadian rhythms so that it allows melatonin production and release at the appropriate times helping us sleep better. The second do here is to soften our lights in your home after dusk. So after you get that, you know, light at between four to six is then to move into lowering or softening the lights around so that we're kind of moving into that time post dinner time, if you will, until bedtime, softening the lights. Alternatively is in the morning is to turn lights on. Again, we're trying to encourage the circadian rhythm, right? Our daily activity of wake and sleep to have the light kind of help us in adjusting that rhythm within us. So the third is Lowering body temperature. So our body temperature when we sleep goes down one to two degrees lower. So you've probably heard this in terms of having the room, the temperature when you're sleeping to be slightly lower. This is really important as well for perimenopausal or menopausal women who might be having some hot flashes is to really note the difference or the relationship between hot flashes and higher cortisol levels. And of course, likely if our body temp increases, we're likely to wake up, not sleep as well, which is a common complaint for women in perimenopause. So managing stress and thoughts, which we'll talk about in next season in the mind, but also natural remedies or hormone replacement therapy for reducing hot flashes whichever works best for you with your doctor. The fourth do is supplementation before bed may help. Now, there's a bunch of things that have been shown to be helpful from a research perspective, one of which is things like chamomile tea that have been shown to have a calming effect on the body, GABA to ease anxiety and induced relaxation, and magnesium theonate before bed can be really helpful for this as well. The fifth do is exercise. Exercise daily has been shown to help us sleep better. So these things do have a relationship and all of these action items I'm going to be talking about really do relate to each other. And the sixth and final do is 
using meditation, relaxation techniques, whether before bed or during the day, will also support overall sleep and relaxation. So sleep is fundamental recovery time for the body. It's essential, especially the deep rest, which is typically earlier in our sleep cycle. And recovery is essential and mandatory for good health. So in addition to sleep, how do we find moments in our day to rest and recharge so that we're constantly or continually thinking about how to fill up our energy banks? And so this can be done in a variety of ways. And we'll talk more about this in our practice section at the end, but it can come from creative projects like coloring, art, knitting, cooking, whatever kind of projects fire you up. It can come from yoga, like yin or restorative practices in particular. Tai Chi would be another. Or yoga nidra, which is non-sleep deep rest. Meditation, breathing practices, as well as connecting time with those we love, laughter, fun, and getting outside with nature. So all of these things tend to be things that allow us to both rest and recharge those energy banks up during the day. These are all ways that we can recharge through the day, and we'll talk more about that at the practice. And if you're interested in this topic of sleep and rest, we listed some great books in the show notes, including Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, PhD. So next up in our action is the impact of food and nutrition as an energy source. So weight loss usually lands in one of the top spots of New Year's resolution surveys. And so people begin to look at the latest diet craze to help them with that goal. And there are so many diets out there. It is overwhelming. And what's worse is some of that information is conflicting. What should we eat? What shouldn't we eat? And most are really unsustainable over a lifetime. That said, there are some common elements around what most people and most research is telling us. And so think about it from this perspective. No sugar. Cut out the sugar. There's been a ton of research that shows that we eat way too much sugar. And it's not just literally the table sugar, but it's the sugar that's in a lot and most processed foods which leads me to number two, which is reduce or eliminate processed foods. The third is cut out bad oils, which tend to be seed oils like the canola and corn oils, which are also very highly processed as well as often coming from genetically modified crops. Know where your food comes from. Have an idea of where it is, which is why the rise in farmers markets and buying produce and meats from people that we know a little closer to home. Eat in moderation. Know what a typical portion size should look like and allow time to fast so your body can recover. This is often done around when we're sleeping, which comes into the three hours kind of before bed, the eight hours we're sleeping, we're now 11 hours of fasting, and even extending it first thing in the morning to allow that body to go into the autophagy phase, occasionally at least, to recover and get rid of some of the old cells that are in the body. In the famous words of Michael Pollan in his book, In Defense of Food, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. I think that kind of sums it up quite nicely. 
eating as close to nature as possible while avoiding processed foods, additives, hydrogenated and saturated fats. We want to really be looking at nutrient density as this measure of the number of nutrients a food contains in comparison to the number of calories. So we want to pack as much nutrients to the smallest amount of calories possible. And not that we don't want calories, of course we do, but how can we get the most amount of the nutrients that we need, the vitamins, the minerals, the phytonutrients, the essential fatty acids, and of course fiber? How do we get that into our diet? So one of the diets that I wanted to highlight, even though I don't really think of it as a diet, it's not a weight loss, but more a lifestyle. WebMD does a survey and for the six year running, the Mediterranean diet won for the best overall diet. And there's a whole bunch of reasons I think that this is true, but one of the reasons I like it is that it's really about the breadth of options within it. And that it isn't a diet, but a way of eating that is sustainable for a lifetime. So there's lots of diets that you can do for a certain amount of time, but we will tend to go back to old habits. But this really allows us a lot of breadth of options so that it can be sustainable. The Mediterranean diet is a way of eating that's based on the traditional cuisines of Greece, Italy, and many of the countries that border the Mediterranean Sea. It's plant-based foods such as whole grains, vegetables, legumes, fruits, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices are the foundation of the diet. It emphasizes more what you can eat than what you can't, but the list of don'ts is very similar to what I mentioned before. Reducing processed red meats, heavily processed foods, refined grains, reducing alcohol, butter, and refined processed or hydrogenated oils. Otherwise, the diet is very inclusive as long as it's real food with an emphasis on plants, fruits, and veggies. This diet also delivers on main nutrients needs of fats, carbohydrates, proteins, water, vitamins, and minerals without adding the toxic load of processed foods into our body. So I think at this point, it's important to consider this again from an energy management perspective. The totality of the foods, including the drinks you ingest, are to be processed in the body and some waste is created. If you're consuming a heavy load of toxins and processed food, we're making the body use the good energy it's also getting to process the bad. And so we're constantly in this energy deficiency. So it's even more important to consider reducing the toxic load, cutting out the processed foods, the sugars, and the bad oils, if nothing else, so that we have more energy and can move into making healthier choices for ourselves. Next season, as we explore the mind and mental health, we're going to be exploring the ketogenic diet in particular as more and more research is showing how it's reducing metabolic syndrome and improving mental health disorder symptoms. For now, we need to create the foundation of just what a really good nutritional plan looks like. For many people, the idea of eating this way brings up issues or shifting at least how they eat brings up issues because they're not maybe comfortable in the kitchen or cooking new dishes or cooking fruits or vegetables that they've never probably seen or used before. So consider it a creative process and have fun with it. There's a, a ton of great YouTube channels, cooking blogs, and more. So try a new recipe out. If you have kids, encourage the rainbow. 
In the show notes, I have a rainbow wheel of food. So it tells you about each food and each color category of the rainbow and that we're really meant to eat a wide range of food and food colors each day to get all of our essential vitamins and minerals. So it can be a really fun and engaging way to get kids to look at food differently and adults too. (laughs) Some helpful tips to consider is to think about a meal plan for the week so you can make better choices. Get the family on board. Grocery shop according to the plan. If you don't buy it, you're more likely not to eat it. Reduce the eating out. It'll save you lots of money and also help you stick to the new plan. Get out the crock pot or the Instapot. It's a great way to make a healthy meal ahead of time. You can put it on in the morning, go to work, do your thing, and when you come home, dinner's ready. There's some great food blogs to make healthy meals under 30 minutes. A few of my favorites are listed in the show notes, and many will have meal plans for the week and grocery lists to make it super easy for you. And remember to eat a rainbow of food colors every day. Start to explore with your food choices. Okay, our last action item, our physical health is our mental health. The impact of sedentary lifestyles on our mental health and physical health is significant. We need to get moving more. So although I think exercise classes and going to the gym can be incredibly helpful, for this conversation, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. And it's not to say that those things aren't important or that you shouldn't do them, but let's shift away. Let's focus on shifting away from the sedentary to movement throughout our day. So you don't become like stagnant water left out too long because that's literally what's happening to people. Moving our body helps in so many smaller ways, like moving emotions through our body as we move, releasing tension, supporting digestion, and so much more. This is one of the reasons why I think wearables can be really helpful in letting us know our overall steps for the day or activity level, but it also can prompt us to get up each hour and move a little and monitoring the healthy, the sedentary to moving time or activity level that we have each day. Now, that's not to say you need a wearable. You can also set a timer to go off every hour and remind you to get up and move around. You can use a standing desk, set those alarms, take walk breaks throughout the day, take the long way to a meeting, take the stairs, do other activities in those hours like burpees, do 10 burpees or two 10 push-ups or do 10 kettle swings. That's what I do. I get up in the in-between of each hour that I work and I go right outside my office door to my workout area and I either do some push-ups or some kettle swings or I do some sense of movement just to keep my body going throughout the day. And the cumulative effects can be more helpful to our overall health than a 30-minute workout and then sedentary for the rest of the day. So go set those timers and get moving. Okay, so our practice. So our practice for the next couple of weeks is all about energy management. And there's two parts to this exercise. So first, as you move through each day over the next couple of weeks, reflect on what is giving you energy and where the drains are and keep a note in your journal. Think about all the things that you have to do in the day and now think about when you feel your best and how you might reorganize your day to best suit your energy. As adults, it's not always within our power to stop doing things that drain our energy. So how can we do them and either ensure our tank is going to be full going into the task and or refueling after? 
Think of it like the pre-workout drink and post-workout drink, right? We're refueling our bodies before and after a workout. Well, sometimes we need to do the same for those things or practices or tests that we have that are energy draining. So for instance, I've shifted my schedule to do more focused work and writing in the morning after my morning routine, which includes my workout and meditation practice. Why? Because I have great energy and focus then, and it just allows me to be even more creative and set up my day in a positive way. If I leave it for later in the day, I don't have the same results because my energy and focus just are different. So what are your energy positives? What are those things that add to your energy bank? Because we can be more productive when we have energy, so focus on the most important things. And then think of getting more energy through rest, relaxation, food, water, movement, and then more productivity. So monitor your pluses and your negatives in your energy bank and come up then with a list of 10 things that you could do that add more energy to the bank. Have it handy as a reminder at any time. If you don't have 10 things, get curious with the list of things that we offer in the show notes and see what works for you in your daily life. Well, that's this episode of Get Energized. Thanks for listening to Get Miles Ahead. Our next episode is a deep dive into focus on February 5th. Please help us out and subscribe at your favorite podcast spot and visit us at milesaheadwellness.com. That's miles with a Y. Until next time, let's get miles ahead and let your best self lead the way.